Most of you turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 1. We're going to finish up our little temporary uh, detour from the book of Genesis this morning. As we finally get to the announcement of the virgin birth and the incarnation of our Lord. Last time we saw the prophetic announcement of the birth and ministry of John the Baptist. That he was to go to a wayward people who had become like the world. Who had forgotten the Lord their God. And therefore whose love had grown cold. Malachi prophesied that this would be exactly the case. And so John's ministry was to turn them back to God. And therefore by doing so to turn them back to one another in love. As the prophecy said, the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children of the fathers. Luke only quotes half of that and then talks about the disobedient to the wisdom of the just because it was that the people would be made new, would be turned to God and therefore turned to one another in real loving and truthful and sincere relationships. But how did John the Baptist conduct that ministry? That's what I want to ask you. Because we're very much interested in that. I think many in the church will leap to the idea and the goal that why can't we all love one another more? Why can't we all get along more? Even the world says that, right? I mean, Rodney King famously, why can't we all just get along? Everybody's looking for unity. Everybody's looking for peace, supposedly. So why is the world like it is? Why do we have so much conflict and difficulty? And how did John... Go about his ministry to turn hearts back to one another in real love. Well, we don't have to guess. We have a very accurate and clear summary of John's ministry in all four Gospels. Let me give you Luke's account. What did John do? What did he preach? He preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how people turn back together to one another in love. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Luke's version in Luke chapter 3, verse 3. John went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Verse 7. And he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, etc. And then he applies that specifically to the people, to tax collectors, to soldiers, each one coming asking how they could apply that to themselves. And then he points to and he anticipates the Christ, right? I baptize you with water, but coming after me, one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's what John preached. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world when he saw Jesus. And then when more people were following Jesus than him and his disciples said, hey, they're leaving you. And John said, he must increase, I must decrease. So John preached repentance. John preached believe in Jesus. He didn't preach compromise with the world in in the name of love and we'll all love one another more. He didn't preach conquer the world in the name of Christ and we'll all love one another. He preached repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the effect of that, not the cause of it, the effect of that will be, well, of course, 
we will have hearts towards one another more. And beloved, I just want to put that before you because so many people are seeing the gospel at best as a means to have a better life in this world. And the gospel is never a means for anything. It is the end. The gospel is Christ. Christ is the goal. Christ is the end. Whether we're at war or peace, whether we're rich or poor, whether it's good times or bad times, if we have Christ, we have salvation. We have reconciliation with God. We have what we're called to have until God calls us home. And not everybody gets the time of peace and wonderfulness. That's actually the exception. Usually we get difficulties Times of trouble and persecution. But if we have Christ, we have God. And that's what we're to be about. And so in today's text, which I've called the Annunciation to Mary. I didn't make that up. That's what it's been called for about 1,500 plus years. To distinguish it from the Annunciation to Joseph, which is what Matthew gives us. It just means the announcement. The announcement of what? The announcement of the Christ. While we celebrate in our families and in our different uh, situations at work and we go to different events, Christmas this time of year, because we remember that God sent his son into the world. And this is the announcement where we first hear it in the gospel. Very important text for us this morning. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would cause us to believe it and that you would cause your word to grow in us that we would be people who are transformed, who truly do have hearts of love to one another. But Lord, we want to know you, and we want to be servants of yours first and foremost. And so bless your word to us. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. This is God's holy and perfect word. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, She was troubled at his saying, and she considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the highest And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, 
Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all, the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. If you saw in our text and you saw in our scripture reading and even in our call to worship, God's promise to send the Savior, and in particular, the Savior would be of the line of David, of the seed of David, the son of David. Think about when Jesus comes on the scene. Son of David, son of David, they would call him. The Pharisees didn't like that. The priests and the Sadducees, because they understood that was a messianic title and they did not believe and they didn't want the people to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But God had promised a Savior all the way back in the garden. We remember the seed of the woman, as we saw in Genesis, will crush the head of the serpent. It was Satan who deceived Eve. And so God, in his grace, caused the salvation to come from Eve. And he says the seed of the woman, which many commentators actually believe there is a a, uh, veiled uh, prophecy there of a virgin birth. Because women don't have seed in the Bible. Seed is sperm. That's what seed is. Spermatos is usually translated seed. That's the Greek word. Zerah in Hebrew, seed, sperm. And it says the seed of the woman. That doesn't make sense if you're thinking in terms of the ordinary way. But you know there are four ways God has made human beings. He made Adam from the dust. That's one way. He made Eve from Adam's rib. Nobody else was made that way. All the rest of us get made by a sperm and an egg coming together. That's a third way. And then the Christ, whose true and real humanity was made a different way. Not from the earth, not from a rib, not from a sperm and an egg, but from Mary's egg because he was of her substance, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, but without a human father. That's a fourth and distinct way in which God made somebody. But this seed of the woman, we learn, becomes the seed of Abraham. That's more detail, right? Seed of the woman, okay, that's basically every human being from then on, because we can all go back to Eve. As soon as they start having children, they start expanding that anybody, right, could be the Messiah. But then God chooses Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham understood what that meant. My son, someday, somehow, is going to be the Messiah. Remember, they thought it was going to be Ishmael. And that's why they get Hagar involved. And, you know, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. But no, my covenant's going to go to Isaac. But then Isaac's told it's his seed. And Jacob's told it's his seed. And then God chooses Judah. And that's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. So now we get more streamlined, right? We're going from Eve to Abraham to Judah. And then when God makes the covenant with David, he says, I'm going to set one of your seed on the throne, my throne, my kingdom. Remember, David's kingdom is a type of God's kingdom. My kingdom forever. And that's what we saw in our call to worship and in our scripture reading. The problem is in the first century A.D., When this prophecy, well, this would be the end of the first century B.C. Most scholars believe about 4 B.C. or 5 B.C. when Mary gets pregnant. That Israel is almost no longer a nation. That Israel is completely captive and subject to the Roman power. And in fact, when Caesar declares that census, some say that that's the last vestige of Israel being in any way a nation. Because they're just numbered as another province in the Roman Empire. And God had promised 
that the scepter, the ruling authority, would not depart from Judah until Shiloh, which is a title for the Messiah, would come. And so he gives Jesus at this precise time. If you do the calculation from the book of Daniel, the 70 weeks, 490 years, again, we get to this time. So the Messiah is going to come, but Israel has nothing left. And if we look at the line of David, and you can see this in the genealogy of Matthew in particular, where Matthew definitely gives the royal genealogy of Joseph, because you see all the kings, and it's possible that that's also the actual genealogy of Joseph. But Joseph is heir to the throne, and Joseph is nobody. He lives in a despised town in Nazareth, which Luke tells us is a city of Galilee, a town of Galilee, which is one of the reasons why we know Luke is the gospel to the Gentiles, because no Jewish writer would write Nazareth as a a, a town in Galilee. Every Jew knows that. But Luke, little things like that in Luke's gospel show us. He's writing to people that don't know the land. But Nazareth is despised, as we learn later from Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's despised. It's in Galilee. It's it's the region of the Gentiles. It's been populated by different people groups. They're mongrels up there. A lot of people can't even tell that they're real Jews. They're right next to the Gentiles. People are pig farming up there. Unclean things. It's not a, a very respectable region if you're a true Jew. And so here is Joseph, the last heir of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship in line for the throne that no longer exists. And yet God is faithful. God is going to bring a king from Joseph. And that's the message of this text. Look at it in verse 27. The angel is sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And here's what's crucially important. Of the house of David. Joseph was of the house of David. Nobody cared anymore. The Sadducees and the priestly family and faction in the temple and the Pharisees were fighting for power in the Sanhedrin. Herod, who's not even a Jew, Herod the Great, is their titular king under Rome. Nobody cares about the house of David. It's gone. And yet God remembers his promises. God is still going to do it through what he said he would do. One of David's seed would be the one in whose whom salvation would come to pass. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Isn't that interesting? And Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Again, picturing how Jesus is going to be sinless and actually righteous. And then in thirty-three, seventeen, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. This is the faithfulness of God. Secondly, I want you to notice the godliness of Mary. I want you to notice the godliness of Mary. I said before that while we in the Reformed camp in the Protestant church don't want to make the errors that the medieval church made and that the Roman church makes to this day especially in regard to mary we do not believe that she was conceived immaculately without sin even martin luther in his sermon says that she had sinful parents and was conceived in sin like everybody else 
But what we don't want to do is lose the fact that Mary was an incredibly godly woman whose example we should follow. Just like any other saint in the Bible, like Paul or Peter or Esther or Ruth or Abraham or David, Mary is an incredibly godly person. And you see that in this text. So here is this virgin girl who's betrothed to Joseph, which would put her anywhere from maybe 16 to 24 years old. I know there's a tendency to say she was very young. I don't believe that's the case. I think she would have been of ordinary marrying age, and that's been the majority position in the church. She was of ordinary marrying age for that culture, which may have been somewhat younger than ours, but it would not have been anything uh, looked at. She was able to bear children and be a mother. She was uh, betrothed to a man, and betrothal lasted about a year in Israel. And this angel is sent to her. And there's a lot of interesting things I could bring out in the text, but uh, I'll do one, where it says, and having come in, the angel goes into the house. I mean, the angel comes to Mary in this really gentle personal way. It's interesting because this is the same angel who was sent to the temple behind the veil, the Holy of Holies. I mean, if you want to go somewhere on earth and you're an angel, that's the most exalted place. That's where it is. You're sent to Jerusalem, the holy city, to the temple, the holy house of God, behind the veil where only the priest could go again on certain occasions. And Zacharias happens to be chosen at that particular time to go back and burn incense. And you appear to him, you know, in this great, awesome, sacred place. Now you're told to go to Nazareth. That's like being told, go to Salzburg. (laughs) Nobody cares. What? What? Go to, go to some nobody, not the priest chosen to burn incense, the most holy person in Israel. Go to some unmarried poor woman and give her a message. But the angels respond to God immediately and obey God immediately. You know, think of Ezekiel's vision where he has his wheels that are angels themselves somehow. And there's four faces and that whenever the throne that they're carrying, which is the image of God, the picture of God, the symbol of God, would go in one direction, they would immediately go because they already have a face in that direction. In other words, the angels don't even have to take the time to turn to do what God says. They can immediately do it because they're always turned towards God to do what he said. So this angel immediately goes. And he says, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, the critical text says, that's it. And then the majority text says, blessed are you among women. But in verse 42, a little bit later, in all of the texts, actually, verse 42, it says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So whether or not that's part of the text here, it is true that Mary is blessed among women because all of the manuscripts say it in verse 42. And again, that's not exalting Mary to some position of idolatry. That's just telling the truth. She was blessed among all women. In a certain sense, you could say blessed among all humans. Who else ever had God inside of their body? It's hard to imagine someone closer to Jesus than the woman who breastfed him for more than a year. And he was God when she was breastfeeding him. Let's not minimize the honor that God gave to Mary just because we want to avoid an error that's made by those who go too far. I hate reactionism in the church. We always want to swing back too far the other way. There's a case to be made that no one was more godly and noble than Mary in the Bible. But it was not her godliness that caused God to choose her. It was God's choice of her that produced her godliness. 
And that's true for anyone in the Bible who is said to be godly or as Zacharias and and Elizabeth were, righteous and blameless. It is God's choice and grace that makes them so, not them being so and therefore God chooses them. That's never the case. Let me give you some examples. Some of these sayings that the angel says, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. When the angel is sent to Gideon in the book of Judges, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Was Gideon a mighty man of valor? He said, I am the least in my father's house. My father's house is the least in my tribe. But the Lord was with him. And the Lord made him a mighty man of valor. It wasn't because of who he was. It was because of God's grace that Gideon became the deliverer. Gideon who was a nobody. And the same is true for Mary. A little bit later in the book of Judges, when Gideon is testing whether or not God really called him, he needs some help for his faith. In Judges 6, 17, he says, if now I have found favor in your sight. Isn't that interesting? Because the angel says to Mary, you have found favor with God. Well, that's been said by several, of several people in the Bible. Gideon, if now I have found favor in your sight, show me a sign that it's you to talk with me. And we remember how he has the fleece and so forth in the dew, and he does that twice. A little bit later in the Bible, Stephen, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 46, declares that David found favor before God. All the way back in Genesis, Genesis 6, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When Abraham sees those three heavenly beings come to him, which are somewhat mysterious, Genesis 18:3, he runs up and says, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight. So the idea of finding favor with God, in fact, Moses several times in the, in the Pentateuch prays that if he's found favor for God to do this, and if he's found favor, in other words, he's basing the fact that he has found favor as a, as the reason why God would answer his prayers. But I want you to notice in all of those cases, they didn't find favor with God because they did something and God recognized it. God's favor found them when they were nothing, when they were dead in sins. And God's favor gave them certain uh, godliness and you know, that righteousness and blamelessness. It's God's grace that does that in people, not the other way around. And even this title, Blessed Are You Among Women, which may or may not be in the original manuscript in verse 28, but is in verse 42, even that has been used before. Judges chapter 5, verse 24. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. You remember Jael, right? She was a character. She nails Sisera's head to the ground. Most blessed is she among women. And then the scripture says it again. Blessed is she among women in tents. Twice Jael gets said to be blessed is she among women. Because God delivered Israel's enemy into her hands and she vanquished him. What a blessing to be the savior of God's people in that particular era. And so if we continued to look, in fact, if we looked at the Magnificat, which we're not going to, Mary's prayer, we would see how thoroughly saturated with Scripture Mary's mind and heart was. She was a godly woman who knew the Lord, who knew his word, who knew and and no doubt had an incredible prayer life and worship life. And that's why when the angel greets her in the way that he does, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women, that she is troubled. Notice it says, at his saying. 
Doesn't say at his appearance. I think he comes to her in a more familiar way. She sees this guy walking into the house and all of a sudden he says this in a kind, gentle way. But she recognizes what that means. Because everybody that I just read to you, Noah and Gideon and Moses and David, who are said to be blessed or said to have found favor with God, every one of them were chosen for a very difficult task. And Mary recognizes that if an angel of God is saying this to her, this is going to be hard. I remember R.C. Sproul used to say, when he first became you know, a Christian, he got to be Reformed. And he's starting to see how the Bible and, you know, in Reformed theology, it all makes sense and it's all consistent. And it is beautiful. You know, I know uh, my buddy Jim's called it a second conversion. When you really get to see, like, wow, all of it just it speaks to me now and everything else. Uh, and, and so R.C. was seeing that, and he started to see, you know, how in Martin Luther and Calvin, God did such good work in, in teaching these doctrines. And he started to pray, make me a Luther, make me a Calvin. And then he got more sanctified, R.C. And then he said, please, God, don't make me a Luther. Please don't make, because I know what that means. I know what kind of cost that is. Because when God raises up somebody to be a great light, there's going to be great darkness that opposes it and that's why Mary is troubled because she knows the word of God and when an angel says rejoice highly favored one the Lord is with you you found favor with God you're about to be called to do something really really difficult and that's why Mary's troubled because she was godly and she knew the word of the Lord All right, a little bit later when the angel gives the message about conceiving a son, you'll, you'll call his name Jesus, etc. I'm going to save that for later. But when she says, how can this be since I do not know a man? I've shown you already. That's not a question in unbelief. That's Mary, like Abraham earlier, questioning God as to what I'm supposed to do with this information. You know, when God says to Abraham, in your seed all the world will be blessed. And Abraham says, well, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless and Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. And it's like Abraham's asking, okay, are you saying that I, should, that I should adopt Eliezer of Damascus? I believe you. I believe in my seed. The world's going to be blessed somehow. But I guess it must be Eliezer because I can't have children. So Abraham didn't understand. And remember what God does at that point. He says, no, one will come from your own body. So he corrects Abraham's incorrect thinking, but not unbelief, wasn't unbelief. And then he takes him outside and he shows him the stars, Remember? And he says, look at the stars. And if you can count them, so shall your seed be. And God does something very similar with Mary. When Mary asks, in other words, what does this mean? Okay, I I don't have a husband, so I can't have a child. Are you saying that I should speed up my betrothal to Joseph and we should hurry up and get married and conceive a child in the normal way? Or are you saying something else? Because I don't have a husband right now. So I believe you, Lord, that this is going to happen, but what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live in the light of this revelation? This is a question of faith-seeking understanding. The same thing that Abraham has said. Not the unbelief of Zacharias, not the unbelief of Sarah, but faith-seeking understanding as to how now should I live. And then the angel, after he tells her what what he meant by this, no, you're going to have a child basically without a husband, without a father, And he says that in verse 35. And then he does the same thing he did to Abraham. He gives him a a sign in the creation. He showed Abraham the stars. What's he do with Mary? Elizabeth 
your relative, we don't know how distant, your relative has conceived in her old age and this is now the sixth month for she who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God and Mary She doesn't ask any more questions. She doesn't want to know how that is and what can be. You know, Zacharias, how can this be? No, no, no. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I don't know if there's a greater statement of faith in the Bible. There's so much there. What does this mean? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. We're going to try to look at that in a minute. The Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So many things that she couldn't have known for certain. Yet now she understands what I'm to do. Oh, I'm I'm going to get pregnant without a husband. That's all I need to know because I'm your servant. This is it, guys. I'm your servant. To belong to God, to be a Christian is to humble yourself and to be a servant. To not be one who needs to know everything and figure everything out and do what you know. No, Did God say to do it? Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Uh, Okay, I'm going to get pregnant. I'm good with that. And and Matthew Henry actually says at this point, not only does she accept it, not only does she believe it, accept it, she actually wants it to happen. Matthew Henry says that she's actually asking and desiring God to do it, though she knows that what this means for her is ostracism, misunderstanding, shame to get pregnant as an unmarried woman. I mean, the law of Moses was that she would be stoned. And they could still do that. And she says, yes, I want this. I want it because you have declared it, Lord. This is the godliness of Mary. Thirdly, I want you to notice, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Well, the message the angel gives to Mary is the long-awaited message That for 4,000 years, the godly were waiting for salvation. The moment Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when God confronted them, he was merciful, he was gracious, he promised a savior. He didn't kill them, though they should have been killed. But they are now sinful. And all that come from them are sinful. Nothing should be able to come from them. God should have ended them. So it's grace that they can continue. But as they continue as sinners, they're going to do bad things. As I said to you before, the reason why bad things happen is because God is merciful. He lets sinners live. The alternative would be to kill us all. Nothing bad would ever happen. Nobody would be alive who was a sinner. So if God's going to be merciful, bad things are going to happen. It's our fault that they happen. But what I want you to see is the message that he gives to Mary is the Messiah. Mary would have clearly understood this. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. You will call his name Jesus, Yahshua, Yeshua, Yahoshua, Hosea, Joshua, all of them from Yah, the first syllable of Yod Vavhe, the Tetragrammaton, the Lord, and then Yasa, he saves. This is the Lord saves. Jesus is the Savior. The Lord saves. Even as John, Johannes, God is gracious. Here is the salvation that John would announce and be the first one privileged to announce. And so Mary hears this and then verse 32 would have told her exactly what was going on. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest, most high, highest title for God. Often in, it's funny, in Gentile context, like the book of Job and Genesis and others, that like people would know of God most high, priest of God most high was Melchizedek. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Okay, there it is. This is it. Mary, now after 2,000 years of Jewish longing, she knows that she is the woman who will bear the Savior. 
that God promised not just to Abraham, but all the way back in the garden, the savior of the human race. And the angel has said to her, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, is this something that Jesus didn't do in his life? And maybe he'll do someday. I think that you can't say that with this text. It's clear that this one who's born is going to be the king. He's going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to rule forever. And it's only going, as we saw in Isaiah, it's only going to increase. That Jesus is going to conquer in this, in this original first incarnation, first advent. You know, the second coming is later. And he's going to conquer and he's going to begin his reign. And his reign's only going to grow from there. I don't know how else to understand the text. All right? And let me just give you some, some information that would say that. All right? When Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he's riding a donkey, it fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Not one who might be your king someday. Your king is coming to you. He's just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. And what are they shouting when he comes? Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of Israel. If you look at all four gospels, they're shouting all those things. The crowd is shouting the king, the king, the king is here. And that's why the Pharisees said, rebuke your disciples. Jesus was the king. And in fact, if we look at his birth, what does it say the Magi came to find? Where is he who has been born the king? He was born the king. He was a born king. The king of the Jews. Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? When Nathanael was called, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. When the priest at one of the gospels see Jesus on the cross, let the king of Israel come down from the cross and we'll believe. The thief on the cross, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus doesn't say someday that'll happen. No, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus was aware, beloved, that in his lifetime, God had placed all things under his feet. Remember, he had to go out and defeat Satan in the temptations before he's even permitted by the Spirit to begin his ministry, to bind the strong man, and then he begins to plunder his house. And this is what we see in John chapter 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has, has given all things into his hand. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been delivered to be by my Father. John chapter 17, Father, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Hebrews 2, 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. 1 Peter 3, 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. I could go on and on. Christ is over all. He achieved that on the cross. He said it is finished. He conquered Satan and he conquered sin and he conquered death and he is the king and he's sitting on the throne reigning over the kingdom and we need to live that way. We need to live recognizing that our king is reigning at the right hand of God. All authority 
is his now. And so I want you to notice, lastly, the virgin-born Christ. I want you to notice the virgin-born Christ. Who is this king? This is something that Mary would not probably have been able to figure out. And in fact, their whole lives, the disciples really didn't know what to do with Jesus. On the one hand, they believe he's the Messiah. They believe that he's, he's the son of God, the son of man. And at times they even worship him. But at other times they, they rebuke him. And they don't believe him. And so they're wrestling with the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. And yet we're told right in this text, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. You know, it's said that, I think the common understanding is that, well, Mary conceives Jesus without a human father because Jesus has to be sinless. And we receive our sin nature from our human father. You know, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. And I don't know a single systematic theologian who believes that. That the reason for the virgin birth is the righteousness of Christ. If anything, the virgin birth declares and shows the righteousness, but it's not the cause of it. It doesn't come before, as it were. It comes after. There are many passages that talk about Man born of woman is unclean. Man, how can a man born of woman be unclean? Several times in Job. David, in sin my mother conceived me. My mother. The idea that sin only comes from the human father. I, well, you know, how does that work? No, that's not the reason for the virgin birth. The reason for the virgin birth is that Jesus is the son of God. That God the father was showing how he has begotten one who is his son, who is equal with him. That's why we get this exalted language. That holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. The Holy Spirit will cause this incarnation of one who already existed. All of this stuff would have to become revealed later and the apostles are going to explain it. But what I want to close to you is this, that Jesus, who is the Savior, who is the Messiah, is not merely man, right? We know this. But he is God, God of God, divine as much as the Father, equal, co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit, three persons in one God. And so this one who was to be born in Mary was her creator, was her God. And yet in his human nature, she was his mother. This is the mystery of the incarnation. It's why we celebrate Christmas It's why we celebrate the doctrine of the virgin birth, which again is that humbling sign that nothing that man can contribute can bring salvation. David's line doesn't even get to supply the sperm, which is really nothing, right? But no, not even that. Because we are sinful, we are dead in our sins, so this pure grace incarnation, impossible from the nature of of reality as we understand it, a supernatural miracle. That's why it's so important. J. Gresham Mason's greatest book really isn't Christianity and liberalism. It's The Virgin Birth of Christ, which is a much larger book. And it deals with the fundamentalist modernist controversy and he shows the importance of this doctrine that Mary conceived. But that conception was a rebuke, as it were, to man, but also an exaltance of God's grace. That grace alone brought the Messiah into the world and grace alone can save you from your sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the Lord Jesus was incarnated. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not 
did not despise the womb of the virgin, a lowly human being, one who was of the fallen race of Adam, but you willingly took upon yourself a human nature. Without sin, you kept not only the sinfulness of the father, but the sinfulness of the mother from contaminating you. For you did this to be a second Adam, to succeed where our father failed. And we thank you and we praise you, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to praise you and thank you for this every day of the year, not just at Christmas, but every day we would be amazed and we would be moved by the fact that our God The Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became a man to save us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.